thank you friends for being here. We are so excited to see you all seeing friends through the screens. And uh, so glad you're here for this very, very important topic of the religious and human urgency of right speech in a post-truth age. Wow. And we're fortunate to be here with a very special scholar, Rabbi Jason Rubenstein, who is the Howard M. Holtzman Jewish chaplain at Yale, where he serves the university's diverse and exciting Jewish community. Jason is a native of DC and taught at the Hadar Institute before coming to Yale. And uh, Rabbi, I've known Rabbi Jason Rubenstein for some years now and I'm always impressed by not only his scholarship, um, how, what he's like as a thinker and as a teacher, but also by his midot, uh, his character, and by his ability to engage with the questions with us. So friends, our format today is about, uh, about 40 minutes of, uh, of learning and then about 15, 20 minutes of, uh, of questions and engagement together. So with that, Rabbi Rubenstein, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh, originally I want to say, you know, the word friend gets overused, uh, maybe cheapened a lot, you know, Facebook being the offender in chief here. I'm going to say like, what a delight is to be here with you, my friend, um, right? It's been 15-ish uh, years from, I've been an admirer of you and your work first up close uh, in New York City and, and from afar. Um, and wanted to wish you a happy 40th also, just, just recently, it was great to see at Milestone. Um, and for all y'all who are here today, um, just the groups of people, groups of Jews coming together to continue to learn uh, despite the pandemic, um, but being able to come together and build community. I've seen you know, the amazing stuff that comes out of the Valley Beat Midrash over the years, and it's a joy and an honor to be part of that. And uh, let's let's jump in. So I want to just frame, you know, the idea that we're in a kind of post-truth era. Uh, you're probably not the I'm probably not the first person you're hearing saying those words, right? The idea whether it's fake news, whether it's social media lies. Uh, Mark Twain apparently was the one who said the phrase that a uh, a lie has gone halfway around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes to get out the door. Um, so this is not a distinctly modern. Uh, problem, but it's accelerated by, you know, first from maybe network to cable news, and then cable news to hyper-partisan news sites, and um, perhaps also to, a, you know, some political styles, which really uh, thrive on um, not just telling lies, as we'll see, but actually going a step further, trying to get us all to question whether there is such a thing as truth in the first place. And um, I think, you know, each of us probably in a different way feels that that's when that happens, um, it's not just a political thing that's happening, even though I think it primarily happens in the political sphere is kind of driven by the, our politics, uh, the, some of the sickness in our politics. And it's also, it's a human loss that extends beyond that, you know, in our ability to know one another. And it also is a religious loss, right? That whatever our deepest senses of connecting to other people, connecting to truth, um, connecting to ideas and a sense of human dignity is all threatened, is all imperiled, is all weakened by that. And the converse, that when we can actually come together with you know, purpose and integrity and meaning, that our, our basic religious um, commitments to, to Torah and uh, to one another, to the Jewish people are, are strengthened and supported. And so I wanna explore an idea that, uh, a text that I think puts that better than really any other one that I've seen. It's from uh, the great uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner. So just a quick show of hands, when I say Rav Hutner, um, any, do we have any Rav Hutner fans online here? Absolutely, of course. So I'll tell you a little bit about who he was. To know him is to love him, as you'll see from this, from this learning. Rav Hutner was, a, you know, one of the great scholars of uh, pre-war Europe. He was very close with Rav Cook. In fact, a fun piece of Jewish trivia, he inherited Rav Cook's strangle, right? The, the, the fur hat that Rav Cook wore on Shabbat, you probably never lost any sleep wondering who inherited it from him. Well, now you don't need to because you know it was uh, Rav Hutner. Um, who was in, studied in Hebron and then founded Yeshiva Chaim Berlin uh, in New York. He was a, an immigrant to New York in the 20th century, um, spent most of his adult life uh, in Brooklyn teaching. And you'll see for reasons that I think will become kind of clear over the next uh, half hour or so, I, he has, he's a solid contender for greatest darshan, greatest Jewish interpreter of the 20th century. 
um, which is saying a lot. You know, there's Rav Soloveitchik, there's Abraham Joshua Heschel, there's Rav Cook himself. Right? It's, a, it's a crowded field. Uh, we're, we're ashering and we're fortunate to have such a, a flurry of intellectual and spiritual activity. Uh, but the thing that Rav Huttner does, I think, differently, and I would say even better than any of those uh, figures I just named, is to use the kind of large-scale ideas of Judaism. We'll see here, he's going to invoke the flood and the Tower of Babel to account for the significance that happens in our lives every day, right? This is one of the things I think many of us love about Judaism that it can frame what's at stake and what might feel like a normal day-to-day -day activity and in big terms, the big terms that are helpful, not just terrifying. And we're gonna see Rav Huttner do that. I'll, I'll call him Rav Huttner throughout. And he does it through um, an intellectual style, which is a little bit foreign to us. So I need you to warn you what we're gonna walk into this. It's gonna feel like a mental gym I'm going to be your like Zumba instructor here for like the next half hour. And what I mean by that is the way that he works, it's a classic, well, he'll take one text and he'll ask a question. And that's like him throwing a ball into the air. And then he'll take another piece of dawn and he'll throw that one into the air. And then once he's got four or five balls going, then the action starts conceptually. But like, that's not how our brains are used to working, right? You just one text, you explain it, then you do another one, explain it. Whereas he's not gonna do any of that. He's gonna throw things into the mix one after another. Then we're gonna kind of do the heavy lifting and then the kind of the balls will shoot out the other side. So at first you'll be like, why are we talking about text number five? I forgot what text number one is and we haven't explained any of them. That's okay. We're gonna make it through together. Your brain will hurt a little bit afterwards, but it'll be like a good workout after you'll be like, I did that. We did that. That was great. Okay, but you gotta you gotta trust him and me with the process. Right, so are you ready to do that? Okay, so we're gonna start flying through flying through some texts here, and I will explain. And if things aren't clear, you know, if I'm talking too fast or you just didn't something didn't make sense, you should feel free to unmute yourself, put something in the chat, um, and we will clarify as we go. You don't have to wait till minutes forty. Okay, so here we are. So. The Religious and Human Urgency of Right Speech in a Post-Truth Age. That's my title, not his. His title is Rosh Hashanah number 20. Uh, Rav Huttner's works in the Pachad Yitzchak are organized by holiday. So, you ready? Let's do it. Strap on your safety belts. Okay. Statement number one. Joseph left prison on Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Let's just pause there for a second. I'm going to stop the show just so we can talk about that idea. So, Joseph was in prison in Egypt, right? His brothers sell him, he goes into Potiphar's house, he's accused of sexual assault, he's put in prison, he interprets the dreams, you know, the baker goes, uh, Stuart goes out, and then he says, oh, Pharaoh has a dream, and he says, oh, there was an uh, Egypt, a, Jew, a Jewish man who could interpret dreams, and Joseph is brought out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. That all is in the Torah, as it normally does, the Torah does not tell us the dates of various events. So one, common and I find it a very elegant move that our rabbis of blessed memory make is to interpret stories just by attaching dates to them. So one image is Joseph left prison on Rosh Hashanah. So this is already an extremely moving image, right? And just in terms of thinking about incarcerated people, right? That any, some of them are, jo any one of them could be Joseph right now. Joseph was one of them. And that the act of coming out of prison is itself a redemptive act of renewal. I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen Emily Bazelon had a piece in the New York Times Magazine about collaborating with her sister, Lara, who's a lawyer, to have a man uh, in New Orleans um, who was wrongfully uh, convicted, have his conviction overturned and vacated. And the, the last few scenes of the story about his, his leaving prison uh, into freedom. So that's the scene. So the, this, is a, the, this is, tells us something, not just about the Joseph story, but also, as so Rav is going to suggest about the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, of what kind of freedom means. It's this exiting of a, a state of imprisonment. Okay. Not every line is going to be this slow and require this much interpretation. Okay. We learn this. So where is what, what verse in the Torah is this attributed to the, to the proximity of two verses? One says, sound the shofar at the new month. That sound the shofar at a new month is a verse that we interpret as Rosh Hashanah because it, is the, it occurs on the date of a new month, a new moon, and we sound the shofar. And a verse, two verses later, witness was given by Joseph when he went out over Egypt saying, I heard a language I had not known. So this is very strange, right? Joseph goes out from prison to, you know, be, to begin his ascent over Egypt. And he says, I had heard a language I had not known. And that's gonna become a key phrase for us. 
The conclusion of this verse, I heard a language I had not known, is interpreted by our sages as Joseph learning the world's 70 languages before his ascent to power in Egypt. So this is a fascinating idea. So the rabbis use the language of 70 to mean like a lot. Like for those of you who took French in high school or French speakers, right? They say 36 in French, 36, which means a whole lot. So the um, Joseph, we are told, learned all of the words the angel Gabriel, I believe, who as he was exiting prison, taught him every human language. It's an amazing image, right? And will become totally central. Okay, so that's the picture. He comes out on Rosh Hashanah and he learns all of the world's languages. We should certainly awaken to the quality of witness by Joseph as it relates to the learning of 70 languages and particularly to the dependence of these matters on his leaving prison, specifically on Rosh Hashanah. So we have Rosh Hashanah and leaving prison and learning 70 languages and the ability to give testimony, right? Witness. Witness was given by Joseph. So that's like four or five different concepts just floating around right now. So it's like we're putting her setting a table so we can have a meal at that. But we're not ready yet. We have to introduce some more concepts. You ready for more? Okay, it's, it's not making sense yet, but it's gonna get there. Just not, we have to take a detour first. Okay, to explain these things, all those things, prison and Rosh Hashanah and Joseph and witness and learning language, explain all those five things, we must return to the source of the world's 70 languages. In the generation of the dispersion, right? This is after the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed humanity and gave them, switched us from having one language to multiple languages and understand the punishment of the generation of the dispersion is not just any punishment that befalls the wicked, but one with a particular depth. And to clarify these matters, we will quote from elsewhere in the Pachat Yitzchak on Passover when he's explaining this. So now we're gonna move entirely over. We're gonna put Joseph to the side for a second and we're gonna talk about the generation of the dispersion, okay? Now, before we get to our next text, we have to ask, I, we have to do a little bit of rabbinic contract law, okay? Why do we need contract law? You'll see, but we need it. We need a lot of material to go on this hike. We're packing our bags. The contract law goes like this. Let's say I'm selling Pam a chair on Craigslist. I put the chair up for sale. Pam says, oh, I'll buy it for $50. She comes to my house and she shows up and she looks at the chair and she says, and then at that moment, one of us changes it. She says, I'll take it. And I say, oh, sorry, I changed my mind. Or I say, okay, you like that thing. She says, oh, sorry, I changed my mind. I don't want it. Question is, can we do that? Or how long can we do that, right? At a certain point, clearly, if she hasn't gotten in her car yet, she hasn't, you know, she can do it. But there's some point at which the transaction becomes binding, such that both parties would have to agree to undo it. And the Mishnah is like every legal system is interested in what is that moment when things switch from being open, either to when that we are contractually bound to each other. Okay, now why is that relevant? How is that relevant? You'll see in a second. That is, but that is the key, the key um, context for this next text. Okay, we learn in the Mishnah in Baba Metzia, which is covers contract law, if the purchaser paid. So Pam says, "Here's your fifty dollars," and I take the fifty dollars but has not yet collected the fruit. The Mishnah's example is always fruit like an apple, but we'll say the chair, but hasn't picked up the chair yet. He or she in Pam's case can change her mind. So she could even after she's handed me the $50, if she hasn't gone and collected the chair to put it in the back of her car, she can say, oh wait, no, never mind. I need that, I want that money back, right? Even though I'm holding it, she can make me give it back to her. Clear? It's only when the object changes hands, not the currency that the deal happens. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what if you're trading currencies? What if you're using dollars to buy yen? Then when does it happen? So it's whichever one is less uh, fluid, less um, fluid. So in America, it would be the yen would be counted as the good. In Japan, the dollars would count as the, um, as the thing that's being bought. Okay, so Pam can say, I want my money back. I changed my mind. But the sages said, this is where we get rid the one capital O God who exacted retribution from the people of the generation of the flood and the people of the generation of the dispersion will also exact retribution from one who does not fulfill his word. So the idea is Pam can say, Jason, I'm sorry, I want my money back. But 
God, who punished the generation of the flood by flooding the earth and killing almost all of them, and the generation of the dispersion who was building the Tower of Babel, giving them different languages so they couldn't speak, will also exact retribution from her. So I just want to pause here because this is like very interesting and raises a lot of hard questions. The first one I want to point is the law in the Mishnah is that Pam can say, no, thank you. I changed my mind. That the Mishnah already represents God's law, the Torah. And it hastens to add, God doesn't like it when Pam does that, but also doesn't prohibit it. Very interesting, right? There's an idea here carved out that there's the law, but sometimes performing the law is actually not performing God's will. Very interesting. Um, so then the question is, I think, what, what do these have to do with each other? Pam was just buying a chair on Craigslist and the Mishnah is talking about the Tower of Babel and language and the flood, right? Like, what? Like, I, we're all, if, if you're not uh, confused, I think it means you're not really paying attention right now, right? What, what could these things possibly have to do with each other? And that is exactly what Rev Hutner is going to explicate now. Okay, um, fine. This, I just summarized the next part of this paragraph. So this drawing down of punishment from the generation of the flood to Pam, sorry, Pam, I, didn't, I, 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 I shouldn't have picked you for the being in the hot seat of all the punishment in this, uh, in this case. It requires clarification. Look at this question. Do we lack for other events of the downfall of evildoers? Why is the punishment of these two generations in particular detailed here? Why not God who exiled Cain? Why not God who sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? Why not God who struck down the priests of Baal at Har Carmel or swallowed the earth for Korach, et cetera? You could pick a million different examples of divine intervention um, and judgment, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like you just go on and on, there's no shortage. Why the generation, what does, what, what, what in God's name does the generation of the flood, generation of the dispersion have to do with Pam not buying my chair off of Craigslist? Um, okay, we see from this Mishnah that the punishment of these two generations has a quality which makes it unique in the general class of the downfall of evildoers. So what is that? Here we go. Note that the first punishment to occur in the world was the punishment of Adam, right? Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, being made mortal. In the language of the sages, that's the Talmud, the punishment is referred to as the diminution of the human form. The Holy One, bless, the Holy Blessed One placed his hand upon him and diminished him. So Adam was reduced in his stature. Um, I wanna pause just to say a word about where Rav Huttner comes from. Um, he grew up in the Sabadka school. So the Sabadka was the yeshiva. And it was a very kind of passionate study of Musar. And the core idea of it was what we just read, actually that each human being possesses an infinite dignity that's kind of hidden, and the tragedy of human life is often that that dignity is invisible to ourselves and we can't see others' dignity. And the purpose of the practice of Torah and mitzvot and Jewish life generally is to make that our dignity visible. And the story that I've heard, I'm a little skeptical of it, but it's, it's the story I've received from my teachers, is that what destroyed the yeshiva and sabadka was the Russian revolution. And not because an army came through and burned it to the ground, but because when the yeshiva students heard that there was an army marching to create a government based on the equal and infinite dignity of every human being. They said, well, this is what we've been taught is the most important thing. And they basically cleared out of the yeshiva to join the Russian, the, the Red Army. Um, it's an incredible image, right? They felt like such a deep revolutionary con consonance between uh, socialism, like a humanist socialism and the Torah that they've been raised on to be passionate about that they threw themselves in wholeheartedly. So that is the paradigm of the human condition. And for those who are into 20th century philosophy, the thought of Emmanuel Levinas, the post-Holocaust French philosopher, speaks a lot about the dignity of the human face. is very resonant in Raputner. Raputner may have even read some Levinas, not so sure, but there's a, a deep echo there of like just the, the infinite power of a human, of a human face. So that is the first moment is the diminution from um, this resplendent kind of metaphysical being, Adam and Eve, or into kind of normal looking human beings but who still retain that peace inside them. And we're gonna keep going from here. And we should further be aware that this diminution of the human form continues twice more. So there's one shrinking down of the human form with Adam and Eve, 
once with the generation of the flood and once with the generation of the dispersion. And the generation, so he, what he's saying is the human form is being shrunk again and again. And he's telling the story really of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, and we'll see how that becomes important in a second. So I'll, I'll skip over the flood one here. It's in the ellipses because it's a little bit involved. But now watch this because this is where we really get going. The transition from the condition of everyone on earth had the same language and the same words, just how things were before the Tower of Babel, when each person could come to know every other person and be known by them, to the condition of confounded languages is a humbling of the status of a human being. We are actually reduced to the extent that we cannot communicate with and come to know the people around us and be known by them. For the essence of a person is her capacity for speech. And this doesn't just mean to produce words, it means to enter into understanding with someone else through the faculty of language. And we see here a famous example. Uncle's translation of this verse is well known. He interprets the verse in Genesis about creating God the Lord formed an earthling from the dust of the earth. God blew into its nostrils the breath of life and it became a living being. So this seems like an uh, easy enough verse on its own. God breathed into the human being and it became a living being. The problem with it is that human breath understood physiologically is not that different from the breath of cows or cats or chameleons, right? Respiration in lungs, separating out the oxygen, send out the carbon dioxide, repeat. So in what sense is there divine breath in us? Right? That's the question, right? Because God had created all the other animals and they breathe similarly. So Onkelos translates as God, the Lord, created an earthling from the dust of the earth. God blew into its nostrils the breath of life which became in it the breath of speech. So the divine breath that each of us carries is the capacity for speech. In other words, a human being is a living breath and dust of the earth and their composition forms the living being, the species that can speak. So the divine, the, the divine spark of humanity is in our capacity to know one another through language and be known by one another. And now watch this. If so, then the confounding of languages, which makes it impossible for one person to grasp the words of another, is a severe blow to the unity of humanity created through the faculty of speech. And because of this, it is clear enough that the generation of the dispersion is the second diminution of the human form. And let's just pause there for a second. So what he's saying, this is an amazing idea is that the dignity of humanity, and some people, I imagine, some people love this idea, and I, some of you might dislike it, and some of you might even hate it. So I hope we'll get to that at 440. Um, 140, 240, whatever time zone you're in. Um, the idea is that the, the dignity of a human being is not some spark that you possess inside, and I possess inside, and Doron possesses, and Lauren, and Judith, and everyone possesses. The unity and dignity of humanity is something that's actually created by the extent to which we can come together. It's something that's formed out of all of our being together, but it's, it exists in the spaces between us rather than sitting inside each of us. And then, and this is, a, I was further from this point on the punishment and downfall of evildoers is of suffering and diminution of life, but never again is their human form diminished. So Rafutner is making a critical point here about the text of the, not just the Torah, but the entire Tanakh, the whole Bible. And that is that there is a, kind of hard and fast separation between Genesis 1 to 12 on the one hand and everything else on the other. And that hard and fast separation is in Genesis 1 to 12, the rules of nature are changing, are being changed by God, right? So for example, if you see a snake and it has legs, you know you are before the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. If you see a snake and it has no legs, you know you are afterwards. Right? If you say, oh, look, everyone is speaking the same language, you, are, you know you are before the Tower of Babel, and it, look, if people are speaking different languages, you know you're after. The kind of structure of the world changes. From Genesis 12 on, even though there are miracles, the rules of nature in the world never again change. Right? So you go to, the, to Yamsuf, where God split the sea for the Bnei Israel coming out of Egypt, and you can't, just looking at the sea, you can't tell whether it happened in the past or whether it'll happen in the future. It, it occurred, right? There was one day when Joshua stopped the sun's motion, but the sun moved the same every other day. He didn't change the motion of the sun forever forward. So part of what's so fascinating, I just want to kind of plant this thought, 
is that when, um, imagine you're a Jew standing at Mount Sinai or you're in King David's court and you're reading the Torah, there's an idea that in your age, there's kind of fixed static laws of nature. And back in some very, very distant ancient mythic past, the world was more enchanted, God was more active, miracles were more powerful. And the reason I'm saying this this way is that's often just how we feel as modern or postmodern folks, right? We live in this world where natural laws are very powerful, but back in the day, people used to think nature was more enchanted and more flexible. But it turns out way back in the day, that's what they thought also vis-a-vis -vis a previous and earlier era. So it's a really just like an amazing uh, image here. Okay. Now, now you may be wondering, wait, wait, did we lose track of what we were talking about the curse of the generation of the flood? We were talking about Pam not buying my chair on Craigslist. And then if you go way back, we were talking about Joseph, we were talking about learning 70 languages, we were talking about leaving Egypt, we were talking about uh, leaving prison, we were talking about witness, uh, all those things. Okay, <laughs> we're talking about Rosh Hashanah. Wow, what, how's it all going to come together? Well, here we go. Let's, uh, now, now the fireworks are going to start going off. Because of this, it is precisely the curse of these two generations, which is placed on the head of a person who does not fulfill what she says. So remember Pam, the character in the Mishnah said, oh, Jason, I'll buy your chair. And then she said, oh no, I changed my mind. For a person who does not fulfill what she says is subject to the same diminution of the human form. In other words, she herself performs an act which diminishes the human form. Why? For the matter of a person who does not fulfill what she says is completely different from speech prohibitions like gossip, right, Lashon Hara, or mockery, or crassness, Nibulpet, and others. Why? A person who violates these speech prohibitions renders the faculty of speech unfit by using it to disgrace and for lowly ugly purposes, right? They use speech to insult, to harm, and to destroy. But a person who does not fulfill what she says destroys and damages the value of the faculty of speech itself. As people say, I've never heard this expression, he makes his son tongue into a shmata. It would be inaccurate to say that he is using his capacity for speech improperly. Rather, he is making his capacity for speech into something that is itself useless. So immediately, a person who does not fulfill what he says is as if he eliminated the essence of the capacity for speech. So what Rav Hutner is saying is normally we think of Jewish speech ethics as involving Lashon Hara, don't harm with your speech. Rav Hutner is saying there's something actually more basic to that, which is when we don't fulfill what we say, when we don't mean what we say or say what we mean, we're actually undermining or destroying the very capacity of speech to mean anything in the first place. So that, you know, for example, when someone says, oh, that was a nice conversation, let's get lunch sometime, right? That doesn't mean anything anymore. When someone says, I like your haircut, it doesn't really mean very much. And so what is, Rav Hudner is describing here is that when we speak in not forthright ways, perhaps even, oh, how are you? Fine. Right, what we're doing actually is we're taking the power out, we're sapping the power out of language. And so just like the people before the Tower of Babel could come to know one another through language and afterwards they couldn't, when we don't do what we're gonna say or don't say what we mean, we do the same thing. We further isolate ourselves because we don't actually have a language that can connect us and can allow other people to understand our lives and can't allow us to understand them. That's kind of the heart and soul of this idea here. And what it gets, I want to point out, is that we live in a world that's constituted by words, but not just words like in a dictionary, words spoken by people to people. And when those, we can trust those words and we can trust what people are doing when they say them, we can come to trust one another and build this, the, the fullness of human life. But when we can't do that, we can't trust one another and we can't um, trust the words that we are saying, other people can't trust the words that we're saying and we can't trust the words that they're saying, then humanity is deeply impoverished. That's kind of the great claim of this piece. So, um, 
Okay, I wanna just find out how to wrap, yes, okay. Let's read this paragraph now, because you're wondering, well, what about Joseph? Okay. And because the punishment of the generation of the dispersion was a diminution in the human form, then the elimination of this punishment, i.e. someone who could speak all 70 languages, is an elimination of this diminution of the human form. In other words, an enlargement of the human form. So it is clear that a person who can speak all 70 languages, remember Joseph, constitutes an elimination of the punishment of the generation of the dispersion, right? He undid in himself that punishment by being able to communicate with everyone. For the essence of the punishment is through a multiplication of the languages such that a person cannot understand her neighbor's speech. But for a person who knows all 70 languages like Joseph did, the multiplicity of languages presents no barrier to the unity of humanity, to the understanding of her neighbor's speech. And so we find in Joseph's statement, I heard a language I had not known, a declaration that for him, the diminution of the human form has been eliminated. And this is the witness given by Joseph. So just to put it all together, when Joseph came out of prison, he didn't just exit prison, he also exited a second prison, which is our own imprisonment in the small worlds of language that we can't escape. And he did that by learning, when he learned all 70 languages, he was liberated to talk to every single human being and to restore, at least for him, the dignity and possibility of what the entire human species is together. And so that's the sense of right, the witness that he gave is the testimony to the idea that each of us can know each other and um, gain something from knowing each other. Ah, does that apply only to Joseph? Lauren is asking in the chat, or does he redeem for all humans? Good question. So Joseph did not redeem everyone. He, he bore witness to something, right? This is the witness he gave. He gave witness to the idea that a human being can come to know every other human being, at least in theory. That's an idea that probably most of us, at least if you're like anything like I was until I read this essay, had never even thought of, right? Like what does it mean that my life is cut off for most of the lives of people, well, not just by distance, not just by religion, not just by when I'm alive, but by the facts of language, right? We take it as a given that most of us will never even have a shot at knowing most of the people in the world or them knowing us. And Joseph gave testament to an idea that that actually the world, that, uh, the human condition that we accept is fragmented and diminished is not the only possible one, right? But there's actually something greater possible. And he embodied that. And that's the picture of the witness, right? He doesn't do it for everyone, but he holds out the possibility of it. So first, I just hope you kind of are feeling now how all of these things come together. Yeah, Jody, we're gonna we are gonna take a little pause here to summarize this. There's a little piece from Harry Frankfurt that I want to discuss also, uh, but let's uh, let's go for it. Jody, you're off. I just wanted to know if we will get a copy of your handout. Yes, you know what I'm gonna do. I will. Um, here, let me just uh, share the link with you all. I think I can even do that right now. I'm gonna send it in the chat. And I can also send it to Pam by email afterwards. Um, so there it is in the, in the chat and I can, I can email it to Pam also, but that's just the PDF sitting on Google Drive. Great. Um, okay, so I wanna just point out, I mean, the thing that I want you to kind of just get a feel for for a minute before we jump into the last passage from Harry Frankfurt is, I mean, just the elegance, right? I mean, just think, imagine the mind, right? Takes us from the Mishnah which goes from some, you know, Pam deciding not to buy my chair for $50 to the text, to the interpretation of the generation of the flood, understanding that as the diminution of the human form, the reduction of the dignity of a person, then to Joseph exiting prison and learning all 70 languages. And through this gives us a real picture actually of what human dignity is. Again, that it's not just something that you have and that I have individually, that when we're separate, actually none of us possesses it. Right, it's actually through our ability to come together through our minds and our minds via language that really means something, not just to talk words and talk about the weather, but to like share deeply what we care about, to make promises. This was Nietzsche's definition. The human being is the creature that can make promises uh, and keep them, right? And to th that is actually how human dignity occurs in that coming together. Um, I find this to be a very moving image um, and one that rings true in the sense, again, that we are diminished when we feel like our words can't mean anything, when we bring evidence for a claim and people don't care. They're like, oh, that's fake news, 
right? When people abuse the power they have to shape language. And we feel like, well, that doesn't just, doesn't just matter for who's elected president next. It matters for like how my conversation goes over dinner, right? And whether I get to know my neighbors and ultimately what human life is about. What, how, how big can we dream in terms of coming to know others? And so the passage I wanna share is a contemporary text. Is it a Jewish text? I don't know. Harry Frankfurt is a contemporary philosopher. Uh, he was at Yale for a number of years. He is Jewish. He's a nice Jewish boy from Baltimore. I uh, he lives in California now. I had the pleasure of sharing a few meals and cups of coffee with him uh, when we both lived right near New York City. Um, and Frankfurt, a remarkable, remarkable analytic philosopher. This is from his, the essay he's most famous for, which I am labeling here on BS. He, he used a somewhat stronger word than BS. Um, I'll leave you to imagine what that is. So what Frankfurt tried to do is, is, a, is a great movie, is as a serious analytic philosopher to analyze the phenomenon of BS, right? We talk about truths, we talk about lies, well, let's talk about BS. And so he gives the following account. This is from a, a longer essay, but I'm excerpting it. This is from 1986. This is a long time ago. I was four years old, right, when he published this. I was probably one when he wrote it. One of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much BS. Right? It's a fun thing. How would you end that sentence? There's so much blank. So he says there's a lot of BS. Now he's going to define what that is. For most people, the fact that a statement is false constitutes in itself a reason, however weak and easily overridden, not to make the statement. Right? When the teacher says, did you do your homework? You say yes. You and your mother says, did you practice for piano? You say yes, right? Because it's easier than saying no. And you say, do you like my new shirt? You say yes. Right? It's like, you're, oh, there's a reason not to say which is not true, but there's another reason and you care about that. All other things being equal, you would tell the truth maybe, but it's, there's something that you, you're like, ah, I don't love lying, but maybe I, I got to, right? Or, or you don't lie. You say, no, I can't lie. I didn't do my homework. I didn't practice. And actually I don't like your shirt, right? You, you either tell the truth or you know that you're lying, but when you do lie, you feel kind of bad about it. But for the BSer, it, the falseness of a statement is neither a reason in favor nor a reason against. They don't care whether it's true or not. <laughs> they just like the way it sounds, like it feels to say it, the way they like the way your face looks. They don't really care one way or the other. Both in lying and in telling the truth, people are guided by their beliefs concerning the way things are. These guide them, the beliefs guide them, as they endeavor either to describe the world correctly. No, I didn't practice for my piano lesson or to describe it deceitfully, right? I did, I want you to think something that I know to be not true, which is I did practice for piano. For this reason, telling lies does not tend to unfit a person for telling the truth because you're, all, you're aware of this true false line in the same way BSing tends to. Through excessive indulging in the latter activity, which involves making assertions without paying attention to anything except what it suits one to say, a person's normal habit of extending to, attending to the way things are may become attenuated or lost, right? It's like, I don't really care. Let's say I'm, I'm saying I have the best economy ever under my presence. More people came to my inauguration than anyone ever. It's not really that I care. That's true. I just like the way it feels to say that. And I like the way it feels when other people say that to me. And that's what I care about. Is it really true? Like, I don't know. Like, that's not, I'm, I'm not going to find out and then try to, I just, that's not what I'm talking about. I talk to college students a lot, right? So one of their examples they always use at this point is that guy who talks a lot, right? They're saying, you know, what does, what did the reading say about this topic? And they just say some stuff. They didn't do the reading. No, it's not like they're trying to deceive anyone. They just like the way it sounds. They just want to give the impression that they know a lot. They're not actively trying to mislead anyone. They don't really, they, they they'd be happy for what they're saying to be right, but it might be wrong. It doesn't really matter. Did someone say something there? Okay, so this last sentence really brings home the hammer. Someone who lies and someone who tells the truth are playing on opposite sides, so to speak, in the same game. Each responds to the facts as he understands them. Although the response is one guided by the authority of truth, while the response of the other defies that authority and refuses to meet its demand. The BSer ignores these demands altogether. He does not reject the authority of truth as the liar does and oppose himself to it. He pays no attention to it at all. By virtue of this, BS is a greater enemy of the truth than lies are. Right, does that make sense, right? Lies, you at least acknowledge that there's truth and you're running afoul of it. 
BS, you're like, truth doesn't even matter. That's not the game. That's not the game I'm playing. It's not what concerns me. It's not what drives my thinking, my speech, my interactions. And what I'm, I'm uh, trying to draw out here, in case it's not quite clear yet, is that I think Frankfurt and uh, Rav Huttner are getting at the same kind of idea that, uh, you know, Rav Huttner called it someone who doesn't fulfill his speech. Frankfurt calls it BS. Uh, Lauren said alternative facts. Exactly. Right? Right? You won't call them lies. You won't say I was caught lying or I accept your argument and say, oh, I have alternative facts. What does that mean? That means BS. That means someone who will not stand by their word in a different sense, not in the sense that they're not buying a chair for $50, but when they're called out, when it's pointed out that there's no evidence, they just do some other sham move, right? They weren't really committed to the truth, trying to get across a truth claim. They were just saying stuff that their boss told them to say. So what I've tried to draw out here, even though you know, we veered certainly into the political, which is where we belong to a sense, is not political in the sense of, you know, this is why you should vote for in 2024, but political in the sense of trying to draw out, uh, I think a human and a Jewish and a religious intuition we have about how and why these post-truth alternate facts, you know, fake news rants actually affect us as human beings and therefore as Jews. And that when we get back, what Raputner does is, is when we get back to our fundamental text about what it means to be a person in the beginning of Genesis, we see that these actually are the themes. And so we can imagine a path for ourselves that furthers the dispersion and the fragmentation of humanity by eroding our capacity of language to bring us together and to enhance our dignity. Or we can imagine a path of healing that says, no, we're gonna to commit to truth um, and realize that there are lies. And in our own speech, um, to really disclosing who we are and meaning it and being open to others doing the same. And that that's an alternate path forward. And I would say one here that has the language of, of mitzvah, of obligation um, and of, of you know, the hopes of togetherness and even with Joseph, a bit of redemption. Um, so with that, we are at uh, 19 Amazing. to the hour. So we're in our discussion yeah. period. Okay, awesome. I love it. This is so rich and there's so much to talk about. I'm going to throw you the first question and folks should ding me if you want to go next. I know I know. Uh, some folks already have. So what, what, what do you do with ideology? The idea that I don't have to think about truth. I don't have to search for truth because there's a reliable box, right? Uh, whatever the Democrats say, whatever the Republicans say, like I can just say that because it's reliable. Or I'm a Reformed Jew, or I'm an Orthodox Jew, and whatever that camp says is basically like, I'm not, I'm not a truth teller, I'm not a liar, I'm not a BSer, I'm an ideologue, and I hold by my ideology camp. If CNN says it, I say it. If Fox News says it, I say it. So wh what do you do with the realm of ideology in a post-truth yeah. So I want to... Um disentangle two, two different versions of ideology, which I think we're floating there. One is, um, you know, for those of you who are Myers-Briggs people, a super intense N orientation, right? I have one big idea and everything follows from that. You know, nation states are evil. Every nation state is evil and everyone fighting against every nation state is good. I don't need to know the facts. I don't need to know anything. Like I know, I know the answer, right? You just like, I put a category. That's one way of thinking. Um, and another one, which you were describing, is, a, is actually an authority structure, right? I have, a, I have a priest of truth. This person, I'm their follower. And I think, you know, I, I'm thinking back a lot to, I think it was a, gosh, a 1794 essay contest on what is enlightenment, where Immanuel Kant submitted an essay and he came in second. Uh, the person who beat him was Moses Mendelssohn, actually. Um, but Kant's <laughs> essay is a lot better. So the first sentence of Kant's essay is, enlightenment is man's um, freedom from self-imposed tutelage, right? Which means being someone else's apprentice, right? And he says, look, there are some times when we need the guidance of others, right? Like, I don't know, like I have high cholesterol. I, I need someone to tell me like these foods increase your cholesterol, those foods decrease it. Like, I, I need to learn that, right? Like someone else has, has facts that I don't have. Someone else has some amount of study I don't have. But it's self-imposed, Kant says, when we aren't willing to take moral responsibility for our choices, which include our thinking, right? And so I think that it's, I'm not, it's not a hard and fast rule, but there's a certain point where in a world where I, okay, there's CNN, but I also know that there's Fox. So now I have to give you an account of why I believe CNN and not Fox, right? At some point, there's a chain of justification and action, which includes which channel I flip to, which says, well, I can tell you why I picked these and not those. And that is, that's important to do, right? That there's, 
you know, no one is born, maybe some people live in a bubble nowadays, but most of us, you know, know it's pretty what to put into Twitter to find the different bubble. Um, and so we are ultimately accountable for that choice. And I don't think we can, I, so that's what I would say. I think it's people kind of passing off their agency onto others. Great, amazing. Okay, our next question here is from Ari. Are you still, you still have a question, Ari? I do. So in regards to the idea of language and, you know, the like dignity and the right to express oneself language, um, where do we draw the line? Because I think that could, that's somewhat of a slippery slope to go down because if everyone has the, you know, opportunity and the right to express themselves and some people's expression will come at the expense of other people's yeah. well-being. So where do we draw the line? Yeah, can you offer some type of an example of what you're thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the whole... I, you know, the whole paradox of free speech, where it's like, if you let people speak freely, then inevitably someone's free speech will either cause damage or violence to someone else. Therefore, the free, that free speech in itself is diminishing someone else's freedom. Right. So it's a really interesting question. I think... I, you, if, I'm, if you disagree with me in the spirit of free speech, I hope you'll tell me and we can go another round and you'll tell me how and why. So the, the person who I think is the most, my kind of guiding light here is the contemporary German philosopher, Jürgen Habermas. And Habermas tells, uh, I'm gonna tell you the story he tells about modernity. He's like, okay, what kind of kicks modernity off is when you like stop burning Galileos at the stake. And like fundamentally what science is, is when you just let a lot of people say like, here's what the universe looks like from my perspective, right? And it turns out like if the Pope doesn't like that, okay, the Pope has to give a better argument about why it looks the way he says it does and we're gonna see who wins. Mm. And then the move Habermas makes is he's like, that's just what democracy is. It's when everybody gets to say, here's what society looks like from my perspective, right? And if the king doesn't like it, he has to give an argument about why he should keep being king, right? Like, but it's the same type of move, basically. And the, so it's, Habermas calls this system of symbols and ideas we use to interact with the life world. And, and what he thinks is the kind of amazing thing about modernity is not that we're rich and we send people to the moon, although that's pretty cool. It's that our life world is less distorted and confined than it used to be. And it has the tools for further advancing itself. Mm -hmm. So you, you can think of a lot of interesting examples of it, right? You, you, I, I see you're nodding here. So I would say that there is a kind of a question of like, which, you know, I'll give an example right now because this is happening in real time. If you can look on Twitter, which I don't recommend for this, you'll see, right? Like there is a conversation right now that's happening at Yale about certain Jewish students who have certain positions vis-a-vis -vis Zionism feel like silenced and worried about speaking. This happens on many college campuses and also Palestinian and pro-Palestinian students feel silenced and worried about speaking as happens on many college campuses. Now, I think they're probably all right. Like, I mean, it's, it's I think it, it's hard for each of them. And what we what is useful about that Habermasian framework is it points out like, well, it's not a zero sum game and we can actually come up with a conceptual thing. You could even imagine measuring it. What percent of people get to speak and how many people are listening? And are those ideas responded to like, you can actually think about the kind of health of a discursive space. And you can say, you know, okay, like, if I get to say, well, that hurt my feelings. So I think you should be kicked out of the university. That's probably on the whole going to diminish the amount of speaking and thinking we get to have here together. But if you in a philosophy class can just bring up as a thought experiment, like, a horrific case of gendered violence, which is going to traumatize me and make it so that I can't really participate in the rest of the class, like that's also going to diminish our capacity to produce and share ideas. So I think if you kind of put that idea forward, it's you can, even though there are some trade-offs, you can think about what's going to kind of maximize our capacity to talk together. Um, and it won't be perfect, but it'll be, as we always say with democracy, right, better than all the other options. Amazing, amazing. Good question, Ari, and thank you. Uh, so I see Lauren Blatt has a question, and then we'll go to Eddie. Yeah. Um, All the way from Canada. This is a question from Canada, so we're going to get a whole new Absolutely, and my, and my approach will be a Canadian one, to be oh. honest. Um, so with the, the concept of free speech, I do think Americans go overboard. I mean, we do have laws against hate speech. Not easy to enforce. But we do. I mean, we've had more than one Nazi paper. Um, 
not allowed to publish anymore. We had uh, a German immigrant who lied about, this is back in the 70s, who lied about his, um, his involvement with the Nazi government, you know, being a Nazi, but he ran a Nazi paper and he was eventually thrown out of the country. So, and the other thing is slander. I mean, I'm just amazed that, you know, Trump is getting away with so much slander that Fox gets away with so much slander because I do believe that Americans have laws against slander. And um, I don't know, I guess it's up to the slandered person to sue. But, you know, there's a slippery slope on both ways and unfettered free speech is just really dangerous also. Right. Well, Canadian point of view. So I, thank you for bringing in, the, it's, it always gets richer when you have a perspective from across any border. Um, but the first thing is there are some multi-billion dollar lawsuits being filed. I think Dominion Voting Systems has been filing them against, against Fox and others um, for slander. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things to do if we were to kind of take this question and feed it back into the Rev Huttner essay, really Ari's question and yours, Lauren, would be to, that, that line when he pivots between using speech destructively like slander versus speech that undermines the power and capacity for speech. And maybe what we're talking about is maybe in America speech has in certain ways too much power, right? Like if it's very powerful, then you're gonna get more of that using it for bad ends, right? If, if you know, and so then maybe we're, we're in some kind of trend. Now it also has too little power in certain ways. Um, but that I think you're absolutely right that this is not like an end all be all. I think what Rob Putner is trying to do is kind of excavate the foundation of, is in terms of the capacity for speech. And then what you're describing is the first and second floors of the building kind of built on top of that. Great, awesome. Our next question here from Eddie. Definitely, thank you so much for, for this great class. Um, I have a question, like, when, like what was really resonating with me was when we were talking about the concept of BS. And what I think that lately has been happening is that even when we bring up uh, facts that aren't like discreditable, right? Like you'll be like, there's global warming. That's a fact. We, we have data. And then other folks will just say, well, that's BS. It's not real. How do we have true dialogue when we've moved into a society where folks really just discredit anything when there's actual facts behind it? Yeah. One second. I'm trying to find the um, uh, New Yorker cartoon about this. Um, um, I may not be able to find it. Um, I can't find it. Anyways, the cartoon is a, a son walks up to his up the steps from the basement. His father's sitting in a lazy boy and he says, Dad, there's eight inches of liberal conspiracy in your basement. Um, right. <laughs> it's like well, at some point, it's like it's real. No, and I was I was just talking about this last night with my wife. Like, you don't hear any more really, oh, that global warming stuff is BS. Now we're on to critical race theory, right? Like, which is itself a sign of BS. I mean, do you guys remember the 9-11 mosque? Right, like that was like a whole thing. Like I remember my father saying to me, he's like the day, he's like two days after the election, you will never hear about that thing again. And he was right, right. So that there's a certain, um, right. So it's there. So what do you do with it, right? When you encounter it. So I, here, I think our guide should be Maimonides. You know, Maimonides says, I'm gonna, it's a little bit my formulation. Like 98% of people, when you, if you sit and talk to them well enough, for long enough, you'll kind of get bring them around. So you're like, oh, okay, okay. So you're saying uh, global warming is is BS. So let's just say you owned, put all your money in an ins flood insurance company. How would you feel about that company never revising its uh, flood zone estimates? Would you be okay with that? And they'd be like, no, I want to get that CEO fired, right? You'd be like, you know, it's a, there's a certain way to kind of have the conversation of like, you know, or other things like my grandfather, may he rest in peace lived on the Illinois River, central Illinois. He said, you know, I remember when I was a boy, he was born in 1923. Most winters you could drive a pickup truck across the river, it was frozen so solid. He said, you know, most of the last years, the last decade of his life, the river didn't even freeze over, right? So there's just certain things you see like, well, some, something big happened here, right? So that's 98% so that's, that's of people. About 2% of people, my money says, they, there's a sickness in their soul. Right, for Maimonides, actually, the idea that he's putting forward is that the human commandment, the commandments in the Torah have reasons. They're actually meant to make our lives richer and better. I mean, some people have a sickness in their soul that they can't give account of that causes them to think that this is an ugly and horrific idea. 
and they will just hate you and yell at you. And you have to find ways to shrug them off. Um, so I find this to be a very useful distinction. They, in rabbinical school, I don't know what they taught you at YCT originally, they taught in the JJs about the two percenters. Like there'll be some people who'll just hate you. That's the way that they will relate to you. And your job is to be like a lovely, non-nefarious villain in their life. Like they're gonna hate you. And so you just have to be nice to them. Never expect to win them over. And that's important, right? I mean, in some ways, you can think about like the whole point of like things like say Congress or at least a functional Congress is that it allows us to move forward over some people's principled objections, right? Like that's the purpose. The purpose is that like a third of the country will be really upset about what we're doing, but not able to stop us, right? Like that's actually really like, there's some deep wisdom in that, right? Like you will never be able to convince everyone um, all the time. Um, and that's, you know, that's for, for a whole variety of reasons, but I, that's how I responded. So, you know, sometimes people for whatever very internal psychological reasons are not able to, to participate. And like, the sooner you can realize that and just let them be them and find other people to talk to and find ways to kind of neutralize their influence, the better you're gonna do. Amazing. Okay, friends, we only have five minutes left. Let's see if we have one or two more questions from someone who didn't speak yet. Feel free to unmute yourself. I just want to offer before people are thinking like a note of appreciation. This is like such a fun group. I mean, you guys know that already, but I, and I had guessed it because it's like, you know, Shmuley and Pam are so amazing, but to just experience it, the questions are so spot on that kind of like perfect sweet spot of like theory and application and personal and intellectual and political. It's like, it's so great. Like you have such a good thing going, you know, I just, I just wanted to share that. It's like, you don't know who you're, what you're, what you're getting into. And I've really, I actually feel like the values of, this tour we've been saying are alive in this group, right? People are, the words are, are entering deep into them, you know, listening to them, finding your own words, like listening to each other in the chat. Um, and it's really, it's, it's a special, it's a special thing. It's, it's a piece of that redemption that Rohutner is writing about that you all have here. So if no one's gonna take a last question, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it because I want these three minutes. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, first of all, I, I wanna be clear that what I'm gonna say is, it, is not, um, I'm not thinking about the moral implications. I'm on board with salvaging truth, I should be clear. But it's a philosophical question. Like part of what Levinas is doing, I think, since you brought him up, is part of the postmodern enterprise that, that reason has failed in, in many ways. Language is inadequate to express truth. Um, and so what do we do in an era where we realize that language is fundamentally inadequate and yet not bail on the project of language. And part of Levinas turning to the face is a way of saying, we need to root dignity in presence, like in presence rather than in any articulation. And I wonder how do we appreciate that sentiment while also maintaining this commitment to truth? Does that make sense? Yeah. You, I, I think it makes so much sense. I'm gonna answer as I often do, starting with a story from my four-year-old, like my four-year-old does something that like most of us grown-ups, at least in the context I'm do, like can't do anymore. It's like he expresses himself really powerfully with his body. Like his capacity to say like, I'm so happy you're home or I, I can't believe you just did that to me is like so much greater than mine through language because of like the way he like jumps and like smiles, like gets really animated or, you know, and the reason I'm invoking that is that if you take, I think you can take this one step further, right? There is something overly linguistified which is a kind of weird quasi word about this. If you were to take everything about this and say, right, the capacity to know others and be known, which occurs through language, but you know, even you know, saying conversation, the data are somewhere between you know, 60 and 95% of the meaning that comes across in a conversation is from body language and tone of voice and eye contact or lack thereof, right? Like if you actually think about what establishes, we said language is a means to the end of knowing one another deeply and being known deeply by others. It's clearly not the only one. And this is a weakness of some, some people like Habermas. You know, well, what about dance? And what about theater? And what about smiles, um, right? Those things which are so powerful um, are, are maybe missing somewhat from this, uh, from this account. Or I would say this is kind of a, a very, you know, the Talmud also is missing smiles and right? it's, it's words. So I would say within the, the words framework, this is leading away to think about that breath that God breathed into us coming forth really not as speech, but as communication, 
And that's how, I, I think that's a better account of what it means to be a person. Um, and also interestingly, right, gets at something, right, that the best of those communications, the smiles, the hugs, the dances, right, you don't post them and they don't, they don't get shared with 50 million followers, right? They're for one person in physical space and time. And that should also probably be the paradigm of our communication. There's actually so little that we can do with our language compared to what we can do with our, our presence um, in all its ways. And I, I felt that presence here, even separated by thousands of miles and, and at least one border. Um, so I wanted to, to thank you all for, Amazing. for being able to join today. Thank you, Rabbi Jason Rubenstein. Thank you all for joining. This has been a great learning experience. Friends, I just want to remind you of what we have coming up. Uh, we have Professor David Kaufman giving a, a class on Native Americans in relationship to Jews throughout American history. Um, we have uh, two, of, two, uh, two reform luminaries in the reform movement coming in the next two weeks, Rabbi Rick Jacobs of the URJ and Rabbi Hera Person from the CCAR. We hope you'll join their, their learning session and many more things to come. Thank you again, Rabbi Jason. Thank you all for joining us. Thank Have you. A great Thank, time. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.